The date is June 8th, 1983, and we're watching Trading Places. Welcome to I Used to Like This One. And welcome to I Used to Like This One, the show where we take a look back at movies we remember fondly from our childhood and attempt to look past the nostalgia to see if they still hold up. My name is Sean Wells, and with me, as always, is the Billy Ray Valentine to my Lewis Wimthorpe III. Hello, I'm Colin Stewart. So... When it came time to pick, because we picked all our Christmas movies, and when it came time to pick a New Year's movie, I was struggling to figure out a New Year's movie, because there aren't a whole lot that I can think of that are set at New Year's. So I, I got on the old Google machine, I looked up New Year's movies, and Trading Places was one that came up, and I realized this was on our master list of movies we wanted to get to. So I decided that Trading Places takes place in the world of finance. Finance. And so we brought in a special guest that deals with entrepreneurs and, and he has a financially based show called the Brad Dog Media Show. So I'd like to welcome our special guest, Brady Hester. Brady, welcome. Welcome, Brady. Appreciate you guys having me. Oh, well, we're excited to have you. I realized after watching this movie that I think I have some serious questions to ask you at one point. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your show and what you do on your show. Give us your credentials. Yeah, I appreciate it. So yeah, the Brad Dog Media Show, it's all about entrepreneurship. So I bring on guests who have uh, successful backgrounds and unique journeys in the world of business and being entrepreneurs. So um, you know, it's an opportunity for me to learn from them and share it with my guests or yeah. with my audience. And uh, it's a lot of fun. I yeah. think, um, you know, I've always been somebody interested in business and growing in my own career. So I've always had those conversations and it's great to be able to share it with other people. So everybody gets to benefit from them. So now I I sent you a message saying asking you to appear on our show and I suggested Trading Places and you said you hadn't even heard of it. <laughs> No, I hadn't. But it's funny because, um, you know, I love Eddie Murphy. I've seen quite a few of his movies and yeah. uh, I'm drawing a blank on the other guy's name, but he's obviously Dan super famous. Yeah. 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 You know, so I'm surprised I hadn't heard of it. So it was uh, a good excuse to go watch it. Yeah. And I, I do feel like after rewatching this movie, I, I should kind of apologize to you guys because I definitely didn't remember <laughs> it quite the same way. That it, it, it didn't quite hold up the same way that I thought it would. Anyway, this week we're looking back at June 1983 when the movies and theaters were War Games, Psycho 2, Octopussy, Return of the Jedi, and of course our movie for today, Trading Places, which earned $90.4 million on a $28 million budget. I'm impressed by how well it did against James Bond and Star Wars. No kidding. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> And as always, spoiler alert, even though this movie is 27 years old, but we're going to be talking about oh, it. Thir so. 37, 37, not 27. Third? 83. <laughs> 36. Ah, oh, yeah, you're right. My math is off. <laughs> that's cr that's That makes it even crazier. But again, if you haven't watched it, there will be spoilers. So go watch it, then come back and hear what we have to say. The tagline that appears on the poster for this movie is... 
they're not getting mad, they're getting even. Or alternately, I did find a couple others. There is some very funny business. Or finally, the long one of the bunch, take two complete strangers, make one of them rich, the other poor, just watch the fun while they're trading places. That one's kind of like mine almost. That that sums it up pretty good. But let's yeah. let's get a little more in depth and go to column for a 60 second synopsis. Okay. When millionaire brothers Randolph and Mortimer Duke grow tired of placing bets on stocks, they decide to bet on human lives. For one dollar, they devise an experiment to see what will happen if they make a poor man rich and a rich man poor, and with their managing director, Louis Winthorpe, and street hustler Billy Valentine as their subjects, they're about to find out. Trading Places is a story about what happens when you're rich enough and white enough to make anything happen, <laughs> but decide to have fun instead. In 2006, uh, Premier Magazine listed this as one of the top 50 comedies of all time. I found that a little bit surprising. Like, I enjoyed it to an extent, but one of the top 50? I don't know. Colin, what was your experience? We've we've heard what Bra that Brady hadn't even heard of this movie. What about you? Do you know anything about Trading Places before now? Like, I've heard of it, but I'd never watched it, and I didn't really know. I mean, the title... The title kind of gives you a little bit of an inkling about what it's about, but I, I'd never seen it before. Yeah. Well, also, apparently the original title for this movie was going to be Black and White, which... Wow. <laughs> <laughs> As we get into the movie, we see how uh, wildly wrong that was uh, would have been. And it would have been starring Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder. So originally there was a different cast attached and I guess Richard Pryor dropped out and at that point Eddie Murphy stepped in but got the Gene Wilder part recast because he said, okay, I don't want to look like I'm just trying to be Richard Pryor at this point. It's interesting that they, cha that they changed the name of the movie, but that doesn't really have any bearing on the substance of the movie. Like, that title actually makes perfect sense. It could have been the byline, you know? Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, like, Black and White would have worked if it was, like, a newspaper movie or something. Yeah. So, okay, well, let's jump into Trading Places. It's directed by John Landis, who directed The Blues Brothers and Blues Brothers 2000, Three Amigos Coming to America, Spies Like Us, and probably most well-known as being the director of Michael Jackson's Thriller video. It's produced by... George Fulzi Jr., whose credits are everything I just listed for John Landis, plus Clue. And it's written by Timothy Harris, who is the writer on Twins, Kindergarten Cop 1 and 2. There's a second Kindergarten Cop with Dolph Lundgren, Space Jam, Brewster's Millions, and Astro Boy. And it's also written by Herschel Weingrod, whose credits are identical to Timothy Harris minus Astro Boy. So we open this movie with The Marriage of Figaro by Mozart playing. And it's an interesting thing that they did choosing this particular piece of music, because in The Marriage of Figaro, Figaro declares that he will turn the tables on his master, just like Lewis and Billy do in this movie, which I thought is like, it's a subtle highbrow foreshadowing that they put in this movie, if you know Mozart. <laughs> I, I love those little uh, things the creators of movies throw in that a lot of times it's just for them and they get a kick out of it, but yeah. a lot of the viewers yeah. wouldn't even know. Yeah, yeah, I would have ha I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but Mozart... But I, but I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, 
But Mozart provides a very regal, epic soundtrack to this opening montage showing the sights of Philadelphia, the people, the different classes of people <laughs> compared to like the high society upper crust morning routine of the butler Coleman, who is played by Denholm Elliott. He has 162 credits back to 1947 in a movie called Mary Rose, but I know him best as Marcus from Raiders of the Lost Ark and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. He's doing things like freshly squeezing orange juice, and this montage ends, of course, with a shot of the Rocky statue. Coleman has prepared breakfast in bed for his boss, Louis Winthorpe III, who is played by Dan Aykroyd, who was an SNL cast member, Great Outdoors, My Girl, Dragnet, Driving Miss Daisy, Tommy Boy, and, of course, Ghostbusters. And Lewis's morning routine includes getting shaved by Coleman while reading his paper and discussing pork bellies. So, I don't know whether I understand being this rich. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? To, to live a lifestyle where someone is shaving you every morning, I just... Th does this even seem real unless you're, like, uh, the Queen of England or something? The one thing I thought was that there's there's no way that somebody could set a whole breakfast table on my bed while I was sleeping and I would still stay asleep. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then and then yep. they could just be like, your breakfast is ready, sir. And all of a sudden I would just jump to attention. Like I'm a pretty groggy, <laughs> I'm a pretty like slow, slow burn in the morning when I wake up. <laughs> oh yeah, that, that's such an old money thing, getting shaved first thing in the morning. Like, right? I feel like nobody that's... Uh, you know, built wealth themselves would ever allow that to happen. You know, they, they appreciate money and things a little more than that. Yeah. The, the one the one thing that killed me is when uh, after he gets dressed and shaved and everything and he's walking to his car and Winthorpe is like he stays on the stairs and is and is locking the door or not. Not Winthorpe. What's the butler's uh, Coleman, name again? Coleman. Yeah. Coleman. He stays on the stairs and locks the door. And then Lewis just stands and waits on the sidewalk for him to come and open the door <laughs> yeah yep. it's like five minutes you couldn't just <laughs> you couldn't just reach over and open the door for yourself but it really it really paints what this character is all about he gets to his office at Duke and Duke as he's walking through the chandelier and oak marble lobby. Everyone is saying good morning, Mr. Winthorpe. And although he's stone-faced, he says good morning in return. And he takes the elevator to his office and turns on his quote-unquote high-tech computer to start his day of commodities trading. Did either did either of you think it was weird that pork belly was a highly traded commodity? How random is that? <laughs> yeah. Well, like, yeah, all... All the commodities that they choose are pretty random, but yeah, pork bellies especially was just kind of like, oh, okay, well, bacon is good, but is that even the belly? I... <laughs> it's like the worst part of a pig. <laughs> <laughs> so we cut to another mansion and we meet the very racist, we will soon find out, and wealthy old brothers, Randolph and Mortimer Duke. I'd say one of them is definitely more racist than the other, though. Randolph is played by Ralph Bellamy, who has 194 credits, and his first is The Secret Six in 1931, and his last credit is Pretty Woman in 1990. He was in The Wolfman, Ghost of Frankenstein, Oh God, Rosemary's Baby, and Mortimer, who is played by Don Amash, who has 94 credits back to 1935, which is Clive of India, and his last was Karina Karina in 1994. We also know him from Cocoon and Harry and the Hendersons. 
They are also getting the good morning, Mr. Duke treatment as they get into their limo and turning on their quote unquote high tech car computer to also play the stock market. I'm wondering how something like this would have actually worked in 1980 when there's no satellite or like, how are they getting the feed to this car for this computer? Yeah. I don't know. That, yeah, that doesn't even seem possible. <laughs> They are arguing amongst themselves about whether or not Winthorpe's instincts about pork bellies are right. They watch as the value of pork bellies goes up and they sell at the right time to make themselves $347,000, which is about a million dollars in today's money. Their ride takes them to the Heritage Club where they'll be spending their day. Like they just, they're that rich that they just don't even have to go into the office. eh? They just hang out in the club all day. Like why even leave the house at this point? Yeah, that's... (laughs) That's a bit absurd. As they get out of the limo, a man on a wheelie board rolls up to them to try to beg for change. He has a sign around his neck claiming he's a blind veteran, and he appears to have no legs. <laughs> this is Billy Ray Va- Valentine, played by Eddie Murphy, who is in SNL, 48 Hours, Coming to America, Beverly Hills Cop, 1, 2, and 3, The Nutty Professor, Dr. Doolittle, and of course his comedy specials, Raw and Delirious. The Duke brothers shake him off and go inside the club. And so they're hanging out in the stuffy club, discussing finance shit, where they give one of the employees his Christmas bonus of five bucks from both of them. And this club is where we get our first real taste of the racism in this movie and how those racial lines are definitely divided when it comes to class. All the people of color are employees of the club, but not a single member is anything but Caucasian. Yeah. So Lewis comes in with the paychecks for the brothers to sign. (laughs) In a world of direct deposit, it's so weird to see someone having to hand sign some paychecks. But these checks include a mystery employee that Lewis has never heard of named Clarence Beeks. And when he questions them about it, they assure him he's a special consultant working on a top secret project. Back outside, Billy Ray Valentine is scooting through a park harassing people for money. And a couple of cops approach him because of reports of a con man in the area. And he's claiming to be a Vietnam vet. And of course, he's found the two cops who were also veterans and are able to poke holes in his flimsy story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Eddie Murphy is very funny in this moment. Like they take off his sunglasses and then lift him up, and then you see his legs slowly come down. <laughs> and, and I have legs. I can walk. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> it's very Eddie Murphy. But the the parts that I did laugh at the most in this movie were Eddie Murphy. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, he's he walks away backwards thanking the cops as he goes I, I do love like again you know he just him being funny and he's walking backwards and he's like a block away and he's still thank you thank you and when he feels like he's gone far enough away he turns around just to come face to face with another pair of cops in the car and then he starts backing up from them and he's walking past the front door of the heritage club when lewis is exiting and coming down the stairs and he collides with him and lewis drops his briefcase with the payroll in it Billy picks it up uh, to hand it back, but Lewis panics and acts like he's getting mugged. (laughs) It's another funny moment where Dan Aykroyd just like suddenly jumps to the worst case conclusion and I'm being mugged, I'm being mugged. And just not listening at all to what Billy is saying. It it reminded me of that video. I think it was this like lady in Central Park. It was like really popular. Well, like not popular, but it like got a lot of hits. Came out around like the George George Floyd stuff with like just all the the, like like the systemic racism and all that where that lady she was like 
walking her daughter or her dog or something through Central Park. And then this, this black guy came up to her and she felt like they had like a verbal disagreement. But then she took out her phone and started like claiming that he was trying to accost her and all Jeez. this stuff. And I hadn't heard that. Yeah. So Billy is trying to give back the briefcase when the cops start closing in. So he hightails it into the club, still clutching the briefcase. And Billy gets chased around a bit inside of the club, but ultimately gets apprehended. And the Dukes, who have been discussing the differences of environment resulting in the caliber of a person, are absolutely fascinated by these events unfolding in front of them in their club. So Lewis decides he wants to press full charges but Billy is just trying to explain that Lewis bumped into him and he was just trying to give the briefcase back. I do like Billy here, though, when he asks, come on, I just want to talk to my lawyer. Is there a lawyer in the house? And, <laughs> and the group of lawyers in the room, like, <clears throat> clear their throats and pointedly look away. Yeah. <laughs> Randolph sees that Billy is the result of a poor environment, and this inspires the old men to create a bet between them about, given the right surroundings and encouragement, anyone could run the company just as well as Lewis. And so the terms of their bet also include destroying Lewis's life as well to see if he would turn to crime if his high-class environment is taken away. And so Randolph believes that Billy Valentine would become an upstanding citizen and Lewis would turn to crime. Mortimer is not convinced and takes the wager for, quote, the usual amount. Of course, it should be noted that in this scene, one of Mortimer's reasons for something being wrong with Billy is because he's a Negro, which he says like that. And he's been stealing since he could crawl. And so we start to see just how racist these brothers are. <laughs> So we watch as Lewis is having dinner being cooked at the table by Coleman with Penelope, who is played by Kristen Holby, whose IMDb pick is this movie, and she has only one other credit, the movie Manhunter. She is being told Lewis's story of his harrowing ordeal with the mugger and kind of getting a lady boner over it. She wants Lewis now, so they retire to the study for weird, rich, snob, sexy scene. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, they're discussing business <laughs> as they're undressing in front of each other. Like, just what a weird scene. That's just how you do it. That's how, that's how, the, upper, that's how the upper class does it. That's foreplay. Dirty I'm, talk. Too, I'm too middle class to understand how, <laughs> how this is sexy. <laughs> So Coleman takes a phone call from the Dukes about their scientific experiment. And after getting off the phone with a very good night, sir, calls them scumbags. And so now we see Billy Valentine in jail with a few other criminals. Notably, one of them is a very, very young looking Giancarlo Esposito, who you may know from Breaking Bad or The Mandalorian. Billy is busy trying to look like a badass, telling his story about kicking Lewis's ass and taking on cops, plural, with his sweet Bruce Lee-taught kung fu moves. And he's also bragging that he has a limo. The two largest guys in the cell are sick of him running his mouth, being a jive turkey this close to Thanksgiving, as they put it. They pick him up, and he's still trying to be tough. <laughs> and I just love Eddie Murphy here with the, you, know, you know who you're fucking with? You know who you're fucking with? Incel 4? <laughs> <laughs> At this moment, he makes bail and, of course, says, I did. 
So he gets outside and is still confused by the fact that he made bail when the Dukes pull up in their limo. Why wouldn't they have been waiting for him? Like, they might have missed him. He was standing out there for a good 30 seconds before they pull up in his limo. I feel I feel like they're too rich to to actually walk into a jail. Yeah, but even just waiting at the curb. They're too rich to stand on a curb <laughs> and, and wait. Are you kidding me? <laughs> they try to entice him into their limo like a couple of pedophiles in a van by offering him liquor. Uh, he thinks it's a trap, but they assure him it isn't because they're the ones who bailed him out. And so in the limo, they tell him they want to help Billy with their program for culturally disadvantaged individuals by offering him a home, car, and a job starting at $80,000 a year, which I took to the inflation calculator, and that's 209146 So that's a, that's a pretty good... That's decent. Yeah, that's... A, a good start. Not too bad for someone that was begging. <laughs> So he checks with the black limo driver. Is this for real, brother? Uh, so these guys is a couple of faggots then. <laughs> so we get our first faggots of the movie as well. But I do enjoy the wordless performance from the limo driver, who's just kind of giving looks and shrugs. But he finds out that the charges have been dropped and he can leave if he wants. He decides to hang out with them for a bit. So they take him to his new house, which is Lewis's soon-to-be former house. They offer to have Coleman draw a bath for him and get him into some fresh clothes. In the tub, when Coleman offers a jacuzzi, Billy has the line, I knew y'all was a bunch of faggots, man. So luckily, that's the end of our uh, homophobic jokes for the movie. He says that until he discovers what a jacuzzi actually is and says, I used to have to fart in the tub to get a jacuzzi. <laughs> that, was, that was probably one of my favorite lines. So he starts singing in the tub and Randall's response is, they're a very musical people, aren't they? <laughs> God. So now bathed and dressed, they are trying to make it clear to him that this is in fact Williams, as they refer to him. It's his house. <laughs> but but the whole time they're talking to him, he's pocketing items, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was very funny. He's kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he's just sticking everything that looks fancy in his yeah, pocket. No, totally. No, this is your stuff. You'd only be stealing from yourself. So this is my vase, he says, as he throws back and forth a vase before accidentally dropping it. And he apologized, but they say, it's perfectly all right, William. It's your vase. He says, it was a fake, right? And, well, we bought it at $35,000 and re recently had it insured at fifty. Hey, look, Mortimer, he's already made us $15,000. And it's funny how... He offers to break something else, and they freak out, and they're like, no, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you want me to break something else, and then they all go, no, no. The, the one thing that this scene kind of makes me wonder about is, so this is Winthorpe's, this is where Winthorpe lives, right? This is yeah. not a different nope, house. No, this is like, Winthorpe's house. So, like, what is the relationship really between Winthorpe and the Duke brothers? Do, do the Dukes just own him? Like, does he have, does he not have anything of his own? He's a managing director, but I guess absolutely everything must be owned by the Dukes. It's basically like he's got a furnished apartment, I guess. I mean, because Coleman obviously works for the Dukes. Hmm. So I I don't know. It's just it's just kind of a lesson, I guess, as you go on in the movie that like why in what world would you ever let somebody else have control of everything in your life? Yeah, like that's really the only way they're able to do what they do to him is because they own 
his entire life. <laughs> now that Billy is settled in, it's time for part two of the plan. Disgracing Lewis Winthorpe, we now get to see who the mysterious Mr. Beaks is and what his purpose is. And he's played by Paul Gleason, who is best known as the principal in The Breakfast Club. They call a meeting in the club where Beaks plants marked money in Lewis's pocket. They call the meeting to order. Something terrible has happened in the Heritage Club for the first time in however many year history. We have a thief among us. Not like the one that attacked Winthorpe yesterday, though. Beaks is introduced, and he's a private investigator who had set up a sting. And he gets everyone to empty their neighbor's pockets and place them on the table. I, <laughs> I, I don't understand, though. Like, the way they do it, it's place your left hand on the shoulder of the person in front of you and check their right pocket. I just don't understand why he's so specific here. It's like they've done it before. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> and you don't get them to turn around and check everybody's yeah. left pocket, yeah. too. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's only the right pocket. Only the thievery could be done there. Yeah. So they, they've they marked uh, three $50 bills with big red X's, and they find them, of course, in Lewis's possession, and he gets thrown out and arrested, and at the station, Beaks bribes a cop, who is played by Frank Oz, who, come on, he's Miss Piggy, he's Yoda, to make Lewis's processing rough, including planting PCP angel dust on him at least we have some black people in this scene that aren't criminals though although almost all of the criminals are black but at least some of the cops like at least they're spreading some of the diversity around without just making them all like servants and and criminals but so he's charged with the intent to distribute uh his pcp and angel dust so we cut to a bar where high-rolling Billy Val- Ray Valentine comes in and buys drinks for everyone in the bar. And the bartender, did you recognize him, Colin? No. No, he's a very young Bill Cobbs, who we saw in Demolition Man as the old cop in the station. And, <laughs> and, and Billy is throwing money around. The two tough guys from the jail are there, and Billy has a chance to prove that he does have a limo. <laughs> He decides to invite everyone over to his place for a party. Uh, But before we leave the bar, I take a look around and I see neon signs for Budweiser and Schlitz beers. So I think it's time to discuss Sponsorship Corner. So always looking for product placements in movies. This one isn't that big. But Trading Places is brought to you by The Salvation Army, Philadelphia Cream Cheese, Apple II Computers, Jameson Irish Whiskey, Budweiser and Schlitz Beers, The Wall Street Journal, Science Journal, Cool Cigarettes, Mercedes-Benz, Keebler, Coca-Cola, Amtrak, Acme Market, and Roche Vucot Luxury Watches, which we're told is $6,955 retail. Plus, at one point in the pawn shop, you can also see a Mickey Mouse watch. Plus, in Jamie Lee Curtis's bedroom, there is a poster for a movie called See You Next Wednesday, which is not a real movie, but the words See You Next Wednesday, it's it's a John Landis Easter egg because they appear in every one of his movies. Oh. And this has been Sponsorship Corner. That's really cool. Yeah. 
So the party is going strong at Billy's house, and within a couple of minutes, Billy suddenly has started taking all sorts of pride in his new environment. Like, really, he's been rich for a day, right? Yeah. Uh, okay. So now, yeah. now he, <laughs> yeah. So like now he's night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe. So now he's suddenly just like you know uh, he's pissed off that people are putting their smokes out on the floor and not using coasters and the downstairs bathroom is for puking but the guy heads upstairs stuff like that you know and we've got a naked woman uh, waiting for him in his bed and he tells her to get dressed and get out you know like he's just suddenly just taken to this upper crust society instantly it doesn't take him long to go from throwing money around in a bar to going whoa wait a minute this is nice shit that I've got. On, on one hand, though, I, I kind of respect it. You know, he's not just letting any woman hop in his bed. He's not letting people treat the house like trash, you know? Yeah. Like, if somebody, I don't know. I feel like if a, a partier was put in that position, they would just wreck the place. But mm-hmm. but he's a little more stand-up than that. I just feel like before 12 hours ago, though, he was probably one of them. Like, it just doesn't take much to to turn change his mind. Well, it just it just shows you that's that's the whole point of the the movie, I guess. Though it's like showing you the power of of opportunity and somebody giving you a giving you a leg up. Yeah, exactly. So we we have more topless women dancing downstairs, but he has had enough and turns off the music with a record scratch, but no record player that I could see, <laughs> and tells everybody to get the fuck out. So everyone is leaving, and he, like, he even, at this point, tells everyone to shut up because his neighbors are sleeping. They have to work in the morning. So like, he's just, all of a sudden, just a completely different person in one day. Coleman decides that he'll tidy up and so that Billy can retire for the night. He has a big day tomorrow. The one thing I will say about that is it's like he hasn't even actually worked yet though i mean i I don't know about you guys but i kind of found like i mean i think that change happens for all of us but it's usually like post-university when you get like your first real job and then all of a sudden you're like oh it's i can't i can't stay up until two in the morning on a work night anymore (laughs) but yeah to go from posing as a vet to this it's just though that that's not the same as graduating from college yeah (laughs) in jail Winthorpe is bailed out by Penelope. He's trying to assure her that he was set up when a hooker bribed by Beaks comes in between them and starts kissing him. You know, and she's all, I need a dime bag, baby. I'll do anything for it. Penelope slaps him and storms off. The hooker tells him it was a joke and that his friend said he would get off on it. So, of course, this hooker is Ophelia, who is played by Jamie Lee Curtis from Halloween and A Fish Called Wanda, True Lies, Freaky Friday. He now teams up with Ophelia, promising extra money to her for the cab ride once he gets home. I don't quite understand that, though. Why is he offering her more money? Is it because she has money now to pay for the cab? Hmm. Yeah, that was the impression I got. That that was the only reason why. Do you have to pay cabs up front in 1983? (laughs) Yeah. Like, do you have to prove that you have a 20 in your hand in order? <laughs> I don't know. So once he gets to his house, his key doesn't work. And when he knocks, Coleman pretends that he doesn't know him, which is not helping Ophelia believe him. So they go to the bank and the manager comes over to him and tells him that his accounts have been frozen by the IRS and that he needs to repossess all his credit cards, all all the credit cards that he had recently bragged he can use to charge goods and services in 87 countries around the world. Wow, 1983. And he has like 
15 credit cards in that big ass wallet of his yeah that that's a lot of credit cards <laughs> but i feel like we kind of talked about that in planes trains and automobiles where it was like you could get credit cards for the most from the most like random places like clothing stores and stuff yeah uh, it's funny back then like it was a flex but now if you have a bunch of credit cards it's like a problem and you're in a bunch of <laughs> yeah, <laughs> how quickly things change yeah yeah na- nowadays nowadays if you saw someone with 15 credit cards you would be like now nah, you're you're headed for financial ruin. Yeah. Yeah, are you okay? Like, do you have a job? <laughs> <laughs> do you just pay off every credit card with your other credit card? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so he gets thrown out of the bank and Lewis begs Ophelia to help him. And she feels his hands and notes that they are soft and recently manicured. He's never worked a hard day in his life. She may regret it, but agrees to take him in. And there are clothes for him that were already here when she moved in. He's told that rent and groceries aren't the only things that cost money around here. You need to sleep on the couch. And the realization that she's a prostitute takes Lewis way too long in this scene. Like, it's showing just how out of touch with regular society he is. That (laughs) she's gone through this entire spiel and it's like, whoa, wait, you're a hooker? (laughs) I didn't understand why she, like, takes her top off in front of him and then all of a sudden, like... Covers was up. it just was he like le- yeah like why she covers up all of a sudden and is just like oh like if you want was she basically saying like you like you can't can't look like looking for free even though she basically already showed everything yeah like why she covers yeah I thought it was interesting when she's like well I have three more years on my back <laughs> it's just like okay <laughs> I mean if you want to I guess I mean I don't know no judgment if that's what you want to do to make up your you saying so you can go invest it sure. I, I, I do appreciate, though, that once he does find out, he actually finds out that she is very smart and has a, a smart retirement plan so that she only has to spend two more years on her back, as she as she puts it. Yeah. So it's it's time for Billy Ray Valentine's first day of work. He needs to learn what he's actually been hired to do. And so he's a commodities broker, and they use food on the table to explain what commodities are. So you've got your finger on the pulse of the financial community a little bit, Brady. Does does their like childlike explanation of commodities trading actually make sense? Do you do you think that this is a legitimate explanation? Yeah, it was pretty fair at first. Though they it's kind of weird. They started describing commodities as just like agriculture and and stuff like that i think they might be a little too narrow as far as commodities go it's i don't know really it's anything that you can trade or buy sell exchange like it's a pretty broad so maybe maybe the like six plates that they had down in front of them were just the commodities that they specifically trade in maybe yeah yeah that could have been it it's i mean they were very specific about what a commodity was so Maybe that's just their world that they live in. Well, their their explanation brings Billy to the conclusion that they sound like a couple of bookies. And Randolph says, I think he gets it, Mortimer. So Valentine turns out to be really good at trading because he has some great street instincts about when people will sell. 
So they're they're impressed with him, and on the way out, Mortimer has dropped his money clip, and he's tempted for a moment, but then Billy decides to run downstairs to catch them in the lobby to return it, making a point, you know, of count it, it's all there. <laughs> and Randolph saying, Nice, nice try, Mortimer. I do like the little blooper though when he tosses him the money clip and Mortimer is busy juggling it, trying to like catch it which is something that was actually a mistake, but they kept it in because it worked and they didn't break character. Oh, that's funny. It's kind of like in Guardians of the Galaxy when Chris Pratt does the exact same thing with, with the orb that he has stolen in the beginning and he accidentally drops it. That was actually something that he did do and then they kept it in. Really? That's funny. That's one of my favorite movies. I didn't know that was uh, unscripted. Yeah, but it works. It works for the character. Yeah. <laughs> so Lewis, meanwhile, has found his friends at the squash club to try to get them to believe that he was framed. Man, these these friends are just, oh, they are like the grossest white people ever. <laughs> they open this scene and they're they're singing the, the, the acapella song to the girls. And it's just like, oh, these, these I, I needed a shower after watching these guys. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, the pretty, worst. it's pretty funny. There's something even funnier because they're like playing tennis. It's just the most posh, yeah. posh upper class thing you could be doing, especially in the 1980s. I feel like, yeah, total frat Fe- boys. Fe- pheasant hunting might be the only. Yeah, thing so like playing polo or yeah. something like that. <laughs> so when they refuse to be associated with him anymore, he goes to a pawn shop to pawn his watch. And the pawnbroker is played by music legend Bo Diddley. Uh, while he's there, he sees a gun and asks how much it costs. So on his way back to Ophelia's apartment, he walks past a restaurant where he sees Billy eating with the Dukes and a bunch of upper crust types and actually fitting in quite well. He stands in the rain and watches for a while, and by the time he gets back to Ophelia's, he's got a fever. And Ophelia turns away a possible client to nurse him back to health instead by taking off her clothes and crawling into bed with him. I guess to give him body heat uh that took a turn it was like <laughs> two scenes ago she said he would have to pay for you know that sort of thing and next thing you know she's just offering it up popping into bed with him yeah there's, there's a there's a bunch of things like that where i feel like it it changes really quick but that was one of them i definitely noticed like you said she's talks about like you know you have to sleep on the couch you can't be in the same bed with me unless you want to pay and then like five minutes yeah. later, she's taking her top off and jumping in bed with him. <laughs> so, yeah, him, him getting uh, getting sick really uh, did it for her. <laughs> so Christmas Eve brings a Christmas party at Duke and Duke, which just like Die Hard, I don't understand why these Christmas parties are taking place on Christmas Eve. But Lewis decides to crash as a very dirty santa and he's pocketing food including the the full salmon that he sticks in his jacket Uh, billy has been working in his office and has also come upon a paycheck for the mysterious mr beaks he leaves his office to go ask the dukes about it and seizing on the opportunity lewis sneaks into his office to plant all sorts of drugs in his desk 
And then Billy comes back in with an understandable, who the fuck are you? And Lewis starts calling for the Dukes who come in and he starts showing them all the drugs and paraphernalia that he's found, quote unquote. Like, you know, he's got he's got red pills and he's got yellow pills and and marijuana cigarettes and and a, a, a syringe. Like, he's, he's got all the drugs. I, I forgot. I forgot that one of my favorite my favorite other jokes in this movie is that every time people approach approach Lewis, they're all like, "You're a heroin dealer." Yeah, and he, he's yeah. always like, "It's not heroin. It's angel dust PCP." Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I did forget to mention that. Yeah, always correcting them on what he was framed for. So Billy picks up the phone for security when Lewis ends up pulling a gun and then runs out of the office and through the party like a maniac. And so Lewis is emptying all the drugs into the garbage while discussing with the Dukes about how you can't be soft on people like that. And we do see him pocket a joint when no one is looking, which I thought was a hilarious little moment. And I'm like, ah, that's that's a sneaky little joke until I realize that like it comes into play in the next scene. But it's it's just, at first I thought it was just a subtle little gag that only some people would notice. But in that next scene, Billy is in a bathroom stall smoking that joint and he stands up on the seat so that he can blow the smoke out of vent. And as he's doing this, the Dukes come into the bathroom. So he squats down and hides the lit joint in his mouth, which is a great moment from Eddie Murphy. Randolph checks under the doors and thinking they're alone, the brothers decide it's time to settle up their bet. And they don't want Lewis back after the scene he's made. And then when Randolph asks if they're going to leave Billy in charge, Mortimer drops the N-bomb. And so in politically correct terms, he's basically saying that he wouldn't want an African-American gentleman being in charge. Would you, Randolph? Of course not. But, ugh, like, I, I guess that the choice of using this word is just to show, give you another reason to hate the brothers. Like, it's gotta be, right? Like, or is was it just that much more acceptable 37 years ago to slip this into a movie? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I, don't, really, I don't really know what the 80s were like mm-hmm. in that regard. Yeah, same. I mean, I'm, so I was born like early 90s, right? 93. So okay. uh, I haven't seen any movies dropping uh, the hard R really <laughs> time. So that was kind of a <laughs> shocker. I feel like they got across already with those guys, but. Yeah. They made it extra well-known there. Yeah, I, I mean, th- looking at it in 2020 context, that's the only thing that I... That's how I choose to view this is that, okay, it just, if you're not the type that is going to get furious enough at rich men playing with poor people, you know, okay, let's give you a good, solid reason to hate these people that starts with the letter N. <laughs> yeah. So they also discuss Mr. Beeks's role in all of this and hint at some future insider trading that he's going to help them accomplish. And then, of course, the biggest slap in the face, as if, you know, having words thrown around while you're eavesdropping, the bet is paid up and the bet was for $1. Gentleman's bet. Classic $1 bet. Yeah. Uh, see, I, I've been binge watching How I Met Your Mother lately. And my favorite is the gentleman's agreement in that, which is the slap bet. Oh, yeah. Where, 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 where Marshall gets to slap Barney five times from now until 
you know, eternity. So slap bet is is a better gentleman's agreement than one dollar. Oh. <laughs> but having overheard it all, instead of confronting the brothers, which you would think would be the automatic reaction, Billy has his enemy of my enemy is my friend moment and seeks out the now very drunk Lewis to try to team up. And he follows him out to the street, but loses him in a bus where Lewis becomes one of the grossest passengers ever by eating the salmon that's tucked into his Santa suit. (laughs) I am a bus driver. I've had people clip their nails on my bus, but I've never had someone pull out a a full skin salmon out of their jacket and started munching on it. And he's picking Santa beard out of his mouth and everything. Oh, I mean, there's something more to it just because he is dressed as a dirty Santa. (laughs) I don't know. When he gets off the bus, he's standing on the sidewalk and it starts to rain and he tries to shoot himself in the head, but there's been a misfire. So how many days has it been at this point? Like three? It seems like four or something like that, but I don't know that they ever gave you a good uh, indication of how much time has passed. So it's like, who knows? Is, is this is this is this the same night that he's sick? No, because they wake up the next day. So there's like the night where Billy is like the pimp and then he has the party. And then there's yeah. the night the night where he's sick. And then this night. So this would be the third night. Or no. Yeah, like this. Yeah, third night since they made the switch. This is a super fast descent into suicidal tendencies. Like, <laughs> like for you know, for as much grief as I give for the fact that Billy became like proud of his richness immediately like to descend into suicide this fast by just you know because you've turned on some tough times like it just i don't know i I actually i actually think it's more believable than billy's situation just just because of how how like useless lewis is portrayed at the beginning of the film like he's a guy who does nothing for himself yeah okay only ever thinks about money and now he has no one to do anything for him. No money, no job. Yeah, shit, he has to shave himself now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I buy it. That, that's a good point. Yeah, bad day for him is like having to shave your own neck. So yeah. at this point, I mean, it's like the worst thing on earth. Yeah. Oh, damn it. Coleman is sick again. I have to squeeze my own orange juice. <laughs> so because he can't kill himself properly, he goes into Ophelia's apartment instead. Uh, Billy has managed to follow the boss in the cab and finds the door to Ophelia's open. Billy tells her he's feel, there to see Lewis. I feel I feel like you're in this in the suicide attempt. You're overlooking the classic gag of him the gun the gun like jams and then he throws it away and it actually fires. I thought that was yeah classic. oh yeah yeah I te- <laughs> definitely missed that. But the gun hasn't worked for him, so now he's in the bathroom taking a bunch of pills, and so Billy has to break down the door to get to him. So we cut to Lewis's old room with him lying in bed, and a doctor has just checked on him, and Coleman, Ophelia, and Billy are there, and Lewis wakes up in the comfy luxury bed and sees Coleman, who says, Merry Christmas, sir. And he thinks the last few days have just been a terrible dream. A terrible dream about an awful Negro. And that's when he spots Billy and launches himself across the bed to strangle Billy like he's Bart Simpson. And through the choking, Billy is telling him that it was a setup by the Dukes. And Coleman and Ophelia pull Lewis off of Billy. 
we go to the living room where we see as Lewis is cleaning his hunting rifles. So like I said earlier about hunting for pheasants or something. Yeah, this, these, these seem very much like pheasant hunting guns that he's got like not not normal not normal rifles you, you you can see him wearing like one of those jackets that has the shoulder patch the leather shoulder patch yeah lewis is quick to the weapons jeez he's just want to bring guns into everything right yeah exactly so he's ready to go after the dukes but Billy is the logical one here saying that they have proved that the worst thing to do to a rich guy is to bankrupt him. Then a conveniently timed news story about an upcoming announcement that the Minister of Agriculture is going to make about orange crops makes them realize what their next play should be. Especially when we see that the information is being guarded by none other than Mr. Beeks, whose name they both recognize from the payroll and who Ophelia confirms was the guy who bribed her to fuck with Lewis. So they put a plan into motion, and Billy, still employed at Duke and Duke at this point, manages to eavesdrop on a phone call fr- uh, from Beaks to the Dukes about a drop time and location for the inside information he's in possession of. It'll be in New York on New Year's Day. So they realize that they need to get their hands on the info in transit. So it's train heist time. Like, this movie has suddenly taken a very weird turn with this train heist yeah it gets so random at this point like i mean of course you're gonna talk about the gorilla coming into it and it's just it goes off the rails yeah this this part of the movie i was a little bit like it didn't to get to get from here to where they ultimately get with the movie it didn't have to have this i think it's like ends up being like a 20 or 30 minute weird segue on this train with all the gorilla stuff and all that yeah and like it it just devolves into like a Farrelly brothers movie like all of a sudden this is dumb and dumber or there's something about mary you know i felt yeah i kind of felt like it was just an excuse to get jim belushi involved (laughs) The, the the train they're on is full of new year's partiers in costume including as Colin just mentioned Jim Belushi, who is like this creep in a gorilla costume named Harvey. And because it makes almost no sense at all, a real gorilla, too, is on the train. Beaks finds a quiet compartment on the train when who should enter but Billy Ray Valentine in disguise. And he's gone full African dress with his daishiki and putting on a fake accent with his Merry New Year. Then they are joined by Coleman putting on an Irish accent and pretending to be an Irish Catholic priest. And then Ophelia dressed in a very boob-popping lederhosen, pretending to be a Swiss backpacker, (laughs) which I love. Uh, Apparently, Jamie Lee Curtis couldn't do an Austrian accent, so that's why she's Swiss in this moment. But I do love Coleman's reaction of, you're Swiss, but you're wearing lederhosen. No, I am Swiss, yeah. (laughs) I felt like she doesn't even sound... She sounds Dutch. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So she sticks her boobs in Beaks' face and asks if he can help her with a backpack. And, of course, he's such a gentleman and goes to put it on the upper rack for her. And when his back is turned, they quickly swap out his briefcase for an identical one, hiding under Billy's daishiki. Billy excuses himself to go to the bathroom to pass the briefcase off to Lewis, who is waiting in the bathroom. Now comes the part of the plan... I I don't understand. At at this point, they've gotten away with their heist. I I guess they needed to return the briefcase with the false documents inside or something. But instead of swapping in the bathroom and having Billy re-switch the briefcases, because it worked so well 
the first time. Billy heads back to the compartment, and Lewis comes in to make the switch, posing as a Jamaican, complete with a bad accent, a dreadlocked wig, and oh yeah, yeah, blackface. Uh, my my mouth literally dropped open when he entered the room, and it stayed open for at least two minutes. Like, <laughs> I was so shocked by Dan Aykroyd doing blackface, and I've actually Googled it since then to see if there's any apology for this, and this blackface has never been addressed in an apology, as far as I can find. Yeah, I thought it, I thought that was interesting, like... You know, when people are, like, for, like, I don't, I don't know if you know Brady, but, like, I think, was it last year? Or maybe it was just, like, a few months ago. I don't know. This year's been weird. But, like, <laughs> all all of a sudden, these these people were bringing up these, these photos of uh, our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, in blackface from, yeah, yeah, yeah from a party... I think it was, like, in the early 2000s, earlier, mid, mid to late 2000s, something like that. And it's causing this big uproar and all this stuff. But it was kind of like, I remember when it came out for me at the time, I was just like, well, I mean, he's taking pictures with, like, people of that race, and they don't seem offended. And it's it's just like, at the time, it wasn't offensive. But I'm always shocked, I, like, when I watch a movie like this, and then I see Dan Aykroyd in blackface. Across like, from oh, Eddie I'm, Murphy. <laughs> across from Eddie Murphy. And I'm like, no one's ever brought this up. Like, I've never, I, I've never seen the movie, so I didn't even know it was a thing, but... I would have thought with all the uproar that that's been happening over the last year or two that somehow this would have made its way into the conversation. Yeah, like especially be, especially because Trading Places is also a very popular movie, so. Mhm. Yeah, he must be a pretty good guy in real life. I feel like a lot of the time uh, those that uh people go after for stuff like this, it's just kind of an excuse to take him down cuz they're kind of a garbage yeah. So he must actually be a, a pretty good dude in, in real life. Yeah, and, I would and, hope. Yeah, and kind of like you said about Justin Trudeau taking pictures with people of that race. It's like, well, okay, I guess in a way, Eddie Murphy signed off on it. Maybe. Well, yeah, it's it's hard it's hard to know because like I feel like I I don't know I have to think that Eddie Murphy probably like was like hmm like not great, but it's but at the same time it's like. I don't know how early this is in his his career, but he might not have, which is also a problem, but he might not have had the power or the voice to speak against it in like a way that wouldn't negatively impact him. If I remember correctly from what I read, I think it's, it was his second movie only. Oh, yeah. So so that makes sense. Yeah. So he's got he's got stand up and he's got SNL at this point. And other than that, yeah, he doesn't have a lot of other muscles to flex, I don't think, when it comes to mm-hmm. being able to stand up for for himself in, in entertainment. Yeah. I just thought it was crazy because there's a, there's other things that like that people have commented on, like even the, the Robert Downey Jr., like the Tropic Thunder thing we've talked about, like short circuit and there's. You know, there, there's lots of instances that have cut, not not necessarily uh, that people have been blasted for it, but it's just like been bl- brought up as part of the conversation. And I, I was kind of shocked yeah, pe- that a movie this popular, this that this didn't come up. <laughs> yeah, because people like Jimmy Fallon and Jimmy Kimmel and, oh, yeah. and Tina Fey were also people that came out and apologized for doing blackface earlier in their careers. And yeah. 
So just for a minute here, let's do as Mr. Rogers says and visit the land of make-believe. There, there's Daniel Tiger and King Friday just hanging out on this oversized trolley. Let's pretend for a moment that morally there is nothing wrong with this blackface. I have to say, what a shitty disguise. Like, Winthorpe is the one person who Beaks should recognize out of these four people. Like, he had to plant evidence on him. So presumably, he he must have had, like, a file with pictures. Like, he's been face-to-face with him. You know, you could probably make the same argument for Ophelia, but his time with her was brief, and he was just seizing an, on an opportunity. But, like, how does Beaks not see through this disguise immediately? Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't remember if it's when they first see Beaks, but I think at one point you can see that his neck is his neck isn't painted at all. Yeah, so. <laughs> there's so many easier disguises he could have done. Like, I don't know. That, or, I guess that's the humor of it. But or it he could have stayed in the bathroom, and they could have done all the exchanging they needed to do in the bathroom. He's the flaw to the plan. Is Winthorpe? Yeah, Why do you even come out? Yeah. I don't understand. Like, I assume they had to read what was in the file and then make sure that they planted the the right fake document in there or something. But I don't know. But so shortly after lighting up a fatty, Beaks recognizes Lewis and the jig is up. He pulls a gun on them and starts escorting them to the freight car so he can kill them in private. And maybe getting caught was actually part of the master plan then so that they could get him out of the way. I don't know. Like, it, it's very convenient that the gorilla-costumed Harvey uh, now now follows them, you know, doing the whole drunken Happy New Year and I love you, man thing. But this is enough distraction that the real gorilla in the cage reaches out and knocks Beaks the fuck out. But not before Beaks has the great line of, I'll rip out your eyes and piss on your brain. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a great line. And it's funny picturing him as the principal from Breakfast Club saying the same thing to one, <laughs> to one of the students. Yeah. But yeah, maybe getting caught was part of the plan. But like they, they end up putting him in the gorilla costume and they get the idea to tape Beaks' mouth shut with tape and... and of course, they put him in the cage with the real gorilla. You know, they take off, heist successful, but the baggage handlers who we saw earlier, who are a couple of SNL writers, they're Al Franken, former former Senator Al Franken, I believe. Yeah. If uh, if my American can back me up on that one. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yeah that sounds right. <laughs> and uh, and Tom Davis. Uh, they they come across the two gorillas in the cage, and because it's already been established in that earlier scene with them that they're these stoner-type morons, uh, they don't think that there's anything wrong with the fact that their number of gorillas has doubled during the train ride. Beaks isn't able to communicate with them because his mouth is taped under the mask. But how about this, dummy? Take the mask off. Your hands aren't tied up. Yeah. Yeah. Did that? And I think it's funny, too, like how... Uh... I don't know. I guess I thought more highly of gorillas. Uh, this girl's so gullible by the costume. They like defense its honor and <laughs> to uh, mate with it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You got to love how they, they make the comment about the smaller one being a female. Yeah. I thought <laughs> just before. I thought just, there was more to like pheromones and stuff like in, in, in animal in the animal kingdom when it came to mating. Yeah. Yeah. 
So we get, yeah, we get the gorilla mounting beaks. And so, yep, it's turned into a Farrelly Brothers movie at this point. We see then see a briefcase exchange in a dark parkade with the Dukes getting hoodwinked by Billy as he passes them the complete opposite information about the Orange Harvests. And now we see our happy foursome of Billy, Lewis, Coleman, and Ophelia in New York's Grand Central Station. Coleman and Ophelia are both trusting these two men to take their life savings and make them millionaires. And they assure Coleman that in an hour, he'll be the richest butler in the world. Because, yeah, because he's going to be a butler still. (laughs) (laughs) And it looks like Ophelia will be able to retire early. Ophelia passionately kisses Lewis. And, and like, I got to admit, I I hate the fact that they hook these two characters up. It's just so unnecessary, so unsatisfying. Like, it's pointless. Yeah. There's no build up to it except for the fact that she gets naked a couple times. But like, what would she see in him? Sorry, I know like it's mandatory for every movie to have some love interest. Like, yeah. why throw that in? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. So they walk up to the World Trade Center. Is this actually where the New York Stock Exchange was? I don't know. I don't think so. Or maybe I don't know if it was back then, but I don't think so. I mean, it's on Wall Street. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I think it's been that way for a very long time. Yeah, I kind of felt like maybe they were just like, well, how how old would the World Trade Center have been this at this point? Uh, it was only built in the seventies, wasn't it? Nah, because I was like, at at first I thought maybe it, maybe it was just a chance to kind of like showcase these brand new buildings, but then yeah. I but then I also I also feel like to the viewer because I was even when I was watching it, I was like, I was like, I'm pretty sure that's not where trading happens, but then I thought. It's the World Trade Center, though, so maybe. Right? That, that's, that's exactly the dilemma that I've been dealing with, is that it sounds legitimate, but I didn't think that was the case. Yeah, that's the thing. So actually, so reading a description here, the World Trade Center is in a, an apolitical organization that can be located in any country. It supplies businesses with access to international trade services. So maybe that's what it is it's more of an international thing where yeah local trading is more wall yeah, street like maybe because they're dealing with commodities then could be yeah. yeah um yeah like i with what you said i know we have a world trade center here in edmonton as well so like i i know that's something that's all over the place so huh i'm trying to do a quick a quick search it opened in 1975 okay so, I mean, it actually wasn't that old by the time this movie it was less than 10 years old when this movie came out yeah well, they're they're getting themselves psyched as they walk up to the front entrance, and we're definitely in Lewis's wheelhouse here. Uh, and he's giving Billy the last minute rundown and pep talk of their strategy. And and one of the lines he says here is, "When you get in there, it's kill or be killed," which is a line that is actually edited out of TV broadcasts post two thousand one because they figure that it might be a little. Um, it might be a little triggering to have the line kill or be killed said right outside the world trade center. So I found that interesting. Mm-hmm. And so we get a glimpse of the Duke brothers in their private stock exchange office, discussing over the phone with their man on the floor to buy everything orange juice. As soon as the trading opens, don't worry if the price goes up, just keep buying. And they are putting every penny they have into their insider trading Back to Billy and Lewis, who are in a bathroom chatting and fixing their hair in the mirror, and the warning bell goes off and everybody floods out of the bathroom? I just wanted to comment again. I find it also odd, speaking of pork belly before, but now that the crux of the film hangs on orange juice and orange crops. Yeah. I mean, 
I, I know nothing really about like the stock exchange or anything, but today it all seems like about technology and uh like media and that and that kind of thing. It's weird it's weird to watch this movie set in the eighties where it's like very much it reminds me of like an old school like agrarian society where they trade they might as well be trading in like wheat. It's like settlers of Catan <laughs> for trading like wheat wheat and wood and sheep. <laughs> But yeah, they, there's this big flood of people out of the bathroom. They were all in the bathroom for some reason. I don't understand that. And so they casually wander out a minute later, and there's a real missed opportunity from John Landis to do like a slow motion hero walk down the hallway <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to, to the floor of the exchange. Lewis points out the layout of the stock, stock floor as much for Billy as the audience, and then a hush falls over the room as everyone waits for the second hand to hit 9 a.m. And when it does, we have pandemonium. And I will say that the idea of a stock exchange floor uh, has always fascinated me because there, there's so much activity going on and people yelling and running around. But I don't have a fucking clue what's going on. So, <laughs> so... Does any of this make any sense to you, Brady? Like, I know you're not necessarily a stocks guy, but you do have a business podcast. Watching this scene, like, can you make heads or tails of any of this? Yeah, no, it's it's insane. I mean, I'm familiar with people that uh, they're in, like, foreign exchange and do different day trading. And yeah. it's nuts because at any given second, it could be a price that you want to buy or you want to sell. So... Uh, this may go into why people were in the bathroom. If you've seen The Wolf of Wall Street, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. cocaine use is not uh, got, shy got, to that world. Gotta get up. Okay, I see. What gotta you're be doing. in the zone. So it's it's a madhouse room. What I've seen through all this flurry of activity, it basically comes down to an exciting looking moment of buying and selling as the stock prices climb. But at one point, Winthorpe yells out like buying at two hundred or something. Like, did did any of that make any sense to you? This this part kind of didn't make sense to me at all. It's like, so why on this given day was day trading this crazy? Like, it's yeah. just day trading. I mean, yeah. I feel like on any given day, it's like this. Every day, it's like this. So mm-hmm. why did it all lead up to this day? And that part just, I don't know. But they're okay. So we we've got Winthorpe and we've got Valentine. the The two of them are kind of like in the middle of this group of people. So have have they already bought the stocks and they're selling to people? Like they're they're jotting down things on pieces of paper and stuff. Like that's that's where I'm lost when it comes to this. Because like Colin, I don't understand any of this at all. And I mean, I, I may be putting you on the spot a little bit here, Brady, but. Yeah, they they must have had stocks already. That must be what it is, and they must have been like overly, um, I don't know, like not diversified and overly into this orange juice stock. Yeah, Yeah. they must have so much riding on it. Like I, I was kind of wondering because their whole goal is to is to basically get the Dukes to buy a large amount of orange juice stock just in time to find out that it's worthless before it could close. So like. I was I was thinking that it must have been the case where they either bought a whole bunch of that same stock beforehand and then sold it high to the Dukes and then it just cratered and then yeah. it bankrupted them. Is kind of that's kind of the gist of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so okay, so that's why I'm extra confused is because the scene that is probably 
missing is them acquiring all this stock in the first place. Right. Okay. Yeah. They didn't explain that at all. So yeah, there's this huge flurry of activity going on. And then a hush falls over the room as the TVs show the minister of agriculture giving his speech and everybody is waiting with bated breath. And he announces that the forecast shows that the orange crops have not been affected by the frost and more pandemonium as everyone is now trying to sell. And now Billy and Lewis are buying it back at dirt cheap prices. Is that what's going on here? <laughs> right. Yeah. I've got I've got a couple stunned looks coming back at me here. So okay. That's so. the thing. I don't I don't get how it instantly made them so rich. Because mm-hmm. like yeah. they would have had to have bought it really low and sold it really high at some point, and it doesn't yeah. really explain that. Uh, and then they buy it all back. Is what yeah, it seems. So yeah. So. Yeah, like I was gonna, I was gonna say, it makes sense if they bought it all in advance and then gave the papers to the dukes, and then like first things in the morning, the dukes bought all their stock at a high price. But then it doesn't make any sense of why they should have just then took all the money and left. It doesn't yeah. make any sense why they would have stuck around to buy any of it back. Yeah, I no, it... <laughs> yeah, I think they. I don't know. And I mean, maybe, maybe that's part of how they're bankrupting the Dukes is because they're buying it back and not letting the Dukes have. I see. Ultimately, it ends up that Billy and Lewis have made an absolute shit ton of money. That's that's what it comes down to in orange juice, of all things. And in the process, they have managed to bankrupt the racist Dukes, getting them thrown out of their fancy stock exchange office as well. Then they rub it in when they see them in person with Lewis paying Billy the $1 he owes him for losing the bet of being able to make a a bunch of money and bankrupt them. We are now shown the ending of the movie, a private island with Billy laying on the beach and Coleman is now a friend rather than a servant and Lewis and Ophelia are now a couple, which I still don't understand, hanging out on their docked yacht and both Billy and Lewis are wearing sweaters in this tropical environment for some reason. Lewis yells, looking good, Billy, and they do an air cheers of champagne and credits. The end. And that's trading places. Oh, I, I have I have information that might make it a little bit. So with the orange juice thing, well, I don't even know. I don't even fully understand this. This is from the Wikipedia. So I'm just reading the Wikipedia plot. So it says, on the commodities trading floor, the Dukes commit their holdings to buying frozen concentrated orange juice futures contracts, which is a legal agreement to buy something at a future date. Other traders follow their lead inflating the price. And then... Oh yeah, so it's like the big short Valentine and uh, Valentine and and Winthorpe short sell their frozen concentrated orange juice futures contracts at the inflated price, and then obviously the broadcast comes in and they. But it, it has something to do with because it's like it's like you're you're setting you're you're setting the price for what you think it's going to be in the future and and agreeing okay. to pay that to pay that price. Well, yeah, because they they yell out like sh- selling at two hundred or whatever, but none of the numbers actually say two hundred at that moment. So okay, so they're predicting that it's going to climb to two hundred. Yeah. Oh, interesting. That that seems like way different from uh, 
the like Wall Street stock exchange. I don't know that. I need to go back and watch that part and listen to the numbers more carefully. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm also wondering if there there must be something different between like commodities trading and like the New York Stock Exchange mm-hmm. like company values and and that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah, totally. I think there is. Yeah. So, Colin Brady on IMDb, this movie scored a 7.5 out of 10. It has a meta score of 69 from the critics. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has an 87% on the tomato meter and an audience rating of 84%. Uh, But Colin, like the price of pork bellies, those are just numbers. Hit us with some critics' reviews. Alrighty then. Okay, so I'm going to start with Rotten Tomatoes. I got a mix of some Rotten Tomatoes critics and then I think a couple Google user reviews. So the first one is David Parkinson from the Radio Times says, This blatant, unacknowledged reworking of The Prince and the Pauper is a rattling comedy showcase for the unique talents of Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. So very, very praise giving. But he kind of undercuts it with this where he says, Who have seldom recaptured the form they show here? (laughs) I was like... You couldn't just couldn't just stay positive. <laughs> Scott Weinberg with E Critic says an altogether hilarious concoction that features Dan Aykroyd at his strongest, Eddie Murphy at his freewheeling funniest, and director John Landis at the absolute top of his game. And then Google user Nyron Hidge. I'm sorry <laughs> if I butchered that and you listened to this says I liked and enjoyed the movie. It is about the power of observation and evaluation of another person's traits, behaviors, and embedded habits. It's about picking what appears to be a loser and bring about a winner's attributes. And I was like, I'm not sure I got that, but maybe I'm just not that perceptive. I don't know. (laughs) So those are my reviews for this week. Right on. So yeah, like I said in the beginning, the fact that Premier Magazine rated this as one of the top 50 comedies of all time. I mean, 7.5, 69, 87, 84, like people love this movie. So let's let's start with our special guest Brady. Where where does uh this movie fall for you? What what was your trading places experience like? Yeah, so I mean, I I thought it was pretty good. I think uh I mean, Eddie Murphy had his moments, obviously, so that helped a lot as far as the comedy part goes. So, I mean, it's really hard for me to rank, like, all-time movies. I feel like top 50 is pretty high, but I would have to sit down and, like, list them out, I guess. (laughs) I, uh, just off a hunch, I kind of rated it in my head, and I want to say, you know, it's around a good 7.1, 7.2 out of 10. I feel like it's one of those movies I'm glad I watched it, but it's not like one I'm telling all my friends about or like going back to see again, you know, yeah. but, but it was good and it had its moments. Well, and in, uh, in 1983, Jamie Lee Curtis was pretty hot. So, you know, I, I will definitely take that and, and add a couple extra points to my rating for that one. Uh, I, I just, I found the movie slow, you know, because there's just this whole build up in the opening that takes like the first 10 minutes of the movie where it's just, you know, let's establish, this rich person environment and that's that's about it but once eddie murphy comes in all of a sudden you've got fast talking funny eddie murphy and it it redeems that slow opening for me a little bit but yeah i i I can see where you're where you're going with that colin what about you where does trading places fall for you uh 
Yeah, I'd probably agree with both of you guys. Like, I kind of felt like it's definitely not my type of funny. And I th- I felt like I wanted more Eddie Murphy. Like, I, I to be yeah, honest, I haven't yeah. seen... I haven't seen that many Eddie Murphy movies, and the only one I can think of is Shrek and Donkey Don Don Don, don uh, Donkey's yeah Donkey's hilarious. You you weren't I felt, raised I felt on like, the clumps at all or anything like that. No, no, okay. I felt like I felt like they didn't use Eddie Murphy enough, which was unfortunate. I felt like he would have he could have added so much more comedy to the movie, like. Like you guys say, like most, like almost all the really funny, the funny moments belong to him. But it, it really seemed like they were they were relying on Dan Aykroyd to be the funny guy in this movie. But his character to me is so unrelatable. It's not. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't really even that funny to see him to see him struggle. Like I think the movie wants you to think it is. Yeah. I think it would have been a lot more funny if they had spent more time like watching Eddie Murphy try to be like a posh upperclassman <laughs> yeah because yeah with with that case it's definitely more of like that fish out of water moment of him coming to the realization mm-hmm. whereas for dan Aykroyd's character yeah it's very much just fall from grace yeah and then and then i also just felt like they a lot of the things where i thought they could have elaborated a little more on they rushed through and then a lot of the stuff that i thought was kind of irrelevant and unimportant they seem to really drag out so i don't know it definitely it definitely was a good watch like it's one of those classic movies that i think i've always wanted to watch but like brady said it's not a movie that i i feel like i need to to rush out and watch again or really be like oh yeah like you guys like tell a friend like i don't think i don't think it's a movie that you have to watch like a lot of people might think it is yeah it's not going to become an annual tradition (laughs) no I agree. I don't. I think back then, I mean, knowing Eddie Murphy's like second movie, I they must yeah. have known what they had with him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. More. And and it just like it, it's very it's very weird in in the style because it, it's almost like there's a few different movies happening here because there's the whole mm-hmm. train scene which is just screwball comedy. Then there's the whole like rest of it that's. Some of it is very, I don't know, some of it's very dry. Some of it's very, I don't And like you said, relying on Eddie yeah. Murphy. And I, yeah. I also thought that the, the, the beaks thing was not like there, there, I felt like there needed to be more to that. Like not that the, not, not that he was just their fixer. Yeah. I thought there, there needed to be something a little bit more to that. Yeah. But. Yeah, I I don't think it holds up quite the way that some people think that this one holds up. I mean, we've watched some movies like Planes, Trains, and Automobiles where we admit that they're still hilarious, still very funny. And this one, it's kind of like, uh, I got I got some chuckles out of Eddie Murphy coming on the screen. But mm-hmm. that, you know, overall, I didn't find myself laughing the whole way through. Like some of it was just some of it was just sad. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like I, I feel like I, I, I probably, I'm probably somewhere in the mid fifties, if I'm perfectly honest with how I felt about this one. Like even just, mm-hmm. even if we look aside of you know the the language and the blackface, you know we're we're still in make believe land here, the land of make believe, and yeah, there's just I I didn't find it funny enough the whole way through for it to hold up and. Like even even as a comedy, I I didn't find it enough to 
be able to go super high with it into the 70s. So I, I'm giving this one a, a much harder time than than you guys are. But I am glad that I revisited it for sure. Even if it was just to have my mouth hanging open for two solid minutes while Dan Aykroyd was in blackface. <laughs> yeah. Well, there we go. That is Trading Places. And that's our movie for this week. So a big, huge thank you for our first show of 2021 to our special guest, Brady Hester. Brady, tell everybody where they can find you, all your handles, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. It's definitely different than the usual podcasts I do. I'm usually talking uh, business marketing and that sort of thing. Yeah. So everywhere, I'm Brad Dog Media, B-R-A-D-D-O-G Media. And uh, yeah, if you're into entrepreneurship, I'm a, a marketing guy. So feel free to go check it out. And you have taken a step that we haven't taken. Uh, you do video, so you're on YouTube. Uh, is there anywhere else that people can find your show or is it just video? No, so it's it's on YouTube. So in the podcast, it's called the Brad Dog Media Show. Uh, but if you just search Brad Dog Media, you would find it. So uh, I mean, it's on all the main ones. So like Apple, Spotify, I'm on Amazon Music now. I think like Google Play, YouTube. So pretty much everywhere yeah i I know the link i know the link you sent to me was was youtube so that that's the only place i had a chance to check out a couple of your episodes was on youtube but i didn't oh thanks yeah i didn't even bother looking at spotify or anything so now i know most people like they like the video component so yeah i think uh yeah you guys should definitely dive into that a little more too yeah i'd have to shave this stash If you like that show, one thing you can do to really help us out on the business end is to tell your friends, share our posts, uh, let people know that we're out there. Word of mouth is the lifeblood of a podcast. Or you can go to whatever app it is you listen to your podcast on and give us five stars. It doesn't really matter what you say. You can just tell us that you're just following directions or you can tell us that blackface is terrible. Whatever it is, just give us those five stars and help drive us up the charts and help us get noticed. Yeah, and if you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at I used to like this one, all one word at gmail.com. And check out our website, www.iustolikethisone.com. There you can find links to all our podcasts as well as our social media. We have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Social media is the best place to go to find out what we're listening to or what we're watching, I should say. And then uh, you can also find all the extra stuff that we talk about, like all the different articles and YouTube clips and that sort of thing. Social media is the best place to find out what we're up to. And then you can come join us as well. I Used to Like This One is created by, hosted by, and produced by Sean Wells and Colin Stewart. It is edited by Sean Wells, music by Lyndon Carter. Look for his band Carter and the Capitals anywhere you listen to music. Thank you for listening. And join us next week when we take a look at another movie on I Used to Like This One.